This week we're going to talk about Theodore Roosevelt's Bigfoot story. This happened in the late 1890s, uh, 1893, in the book The Wilderness Hunter that uh, happened uh, near Salmon River in Idaho, a Sasquatch encounter. Bowman uh, was a hunter, trapper, mountain man, and uh, he was from Germany. And uh, he had all kinds of uh, stories and uh, tales he told about being up in the wilderness, mountain man style stories and things he'd done. Well, when the event occurred, Bowman was still a young man. And he was trapping with his partner among the mountains, dividing the fork of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said, said to contain many beavers. The pass had a bad reputation because of the year before uh, a hunter that was alone had wandered into it and for some reason was slain seemingly by a wild beast. The half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, waited very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky, timber-clad ground being from their onward impractable for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there were much down timber although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached the camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards away, the tall, close-set pines and the firs rising around it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes, covered with unbroken growth of evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their absence something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no attention or particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores of lighting and the fire while Bowman was making ready supper. It being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up. Where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand or the torch flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two peering out into the darkness and suddenly remarked, Bowman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bowman laughed at this 
but his partner, but his partner insisted that he was right. And upon gaining again examining the, the tracks with the torch, they certainly did seem to be made by two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of human beings, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to a sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bowman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed. For immediately afterwards, he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest at night. After this, the two men slept up a little bit, setting up and rekindling the fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look for a few more traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw Harley to their astonishment that the lean-to again had been torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in the wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook. The footprints were as plain as if on the snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had been walking off on but two legs. The men, all thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night. One or the other sitting on the guard most of the time. About midnight the thing came down through the forest opposite across the brook and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as if it moved about and several times it had uttered a harsh, grating, long-grown moan, a peculiarly sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because, in spite of seeing a good deal of game and signs of good game, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up a trap after another trap after another trap, each one being empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap, and after they had passed, and now and then, there was slight rustling of noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fear seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from the little pond in the wide ravine nearby. Bowman volunteered to gather these and bring them in 
while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bowman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver's house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was setting. As he heard toward camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed upon him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at the distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over the somber primeval forest. At last he came to the end of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay packs wrapped in a range. At first Bowman could see nobody, nor did he receive any answer to his call. Stepping forward he again shouted, and he did, as he did so his eye fell on the body of his friend stretched out beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing toward it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but his neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch on one of the adventures, unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with the force of its hands or paws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and bounced around on it in a very ferocious manner, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bowman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal with was something either half human or half evil, abandoned everything but his rifle, and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond each of the pursuit. So that's a little story of what had happened, and uh, this came out of a diary that uh, Teddy Roosevelt himself had uh, heard about and wrote and written about these two mountain men. See you later. Let's talk about the shootout. Pembina, North Dakota Post Office. In the uh, annals of uh, Western outlawry, 
certain names have been etched into the American psyche. Names such as Frank, Jesse James, the Younger Brothers, Billy the Kid, Black Bart, and Sam Bass, just to name a few. For the most part, their villainous exploits took place in parts of the country far remote from rural South Dakota and North Dakota. The closest any of them got to North Dakota was the James Gang's ill-fated attempt at robbing the bank in Northfield, Minnesota, and the last gang's robbing of seven stagecoaches in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Still, the effect of one outlaw's exploits rippled to the tiny town of Pembina, Dakota, Territory in 1870. Sam Bass was a young Texas outlaw who headquartered himself in Denton, Texas. He teamed up with the outlaw Joel Collins and four others, the Bass Gang staged the largest train robbery in U.S. history at that time when they held up the Union Pacific Railroad at a tiny watering hole called Big Springs in Nebraska on the evening of September of 18, 1877. Although Bass was considered the leader of the gang, law enforcement claimed Joe Collins was the brains of the outfit. The gang rode into the stopover, made hostages, hostages of the station master and several others in the vicinity, cut the telegraph lines and waited. When the train pulled in for water, one gang member swung himself into the cab of the locomotive and took the engineer and fireman hostage while the others headed for the baggage car. When they rode off into the night, the gang had relieved the railroad of $600,000 today, which was $60,000, freshly minted $1,877 gold pieces. Dividing up the treasure, each man had 500 gold coins in his possession. 35 pounds of gold per gang The group split into three groups of two men, each heading in a different direction. Word spread fast about the robbery, and law enforcement swooped in on the area. One of the gang members disappeared and was never heard of again. Many assumed they had gone to Canada. Joe Collins and his partner didn't fare well. Being intercepted by a posse within days after a free shootout, both outlaws were dead, and 20,000 of gold coins were recovered, which is an estimated value of 200,000 in today's money. Bass and his partner figured two lone riders would be suspicious, so they acquired a buggy, stashed the coins under the seat, and rode, and rode blissfully by the band of law officers they encountered. Returning to Denton, Texas, Bass enjoyed the highlights freely and enjoying the local sword of hero worship. He had plenty of friends to warn him of approaching trouble and knowing the area like the back of his hand he could easily hide from the pursuers. Living the high life, the money soon ran out and Bass returned to his old ways. Organizing a new gang, he returned to robbing trains. Only this time it was different. He chose to hit the local railroads gang robbing four trains in quick succession within a 25-mile radius of his base operation. It was at this point the locals turned on him and his gang. For seven weeks, the gang was pursued by company of Texas Rangers, U.S. Marshals, and local law enforcement, all to no avail. Although the accomplice, Arkansas Johnson, was killed in a skirmish from which the rest of the gang escaped. Well, the downfall came at the hands 
was five that infiltrated the gang. And by gang member Jim Murphy, who betrayed him in exchange for having charges dropped against himself and his father. The middle day came when the gang rode into Round Rock, Texas, intent on robbing the local bank. Laying in wait were the Texas Rangers and local law enforcement. Bloody shootout when Deputy Sheriff was killed, as was one of the outlaws. Bass himself was wounded but managed to clamber onto the horse and ride away. The trailing posse found him the next day, lying under a tree, almost dead but still alive and wounded. Death came to Sam Bass July 21st of 1878. It was only his 27th birthday. Of the participants on the April 10th, train robbery in Mesquite, Texas. Six of the eight robbers had either been killed or were in prison by the time of Bass's death. The robbery had led to each of the bandits a paltry sum of $23,000. One of the gang, William Collins, was arrested days after the robbery and taken to Austin to stand trial. He was moved to the jail in Dallas and in June there his family posted a $15,000 bond to secure his appearance in court, a date he did not intend to keep. A brother to outlaw Joe Collins, who had participated in the earlier Big Springs train robbery, William Collins jumped bail and headed north, roaming across several states before eventually ending up in Pembimba, Dakota Territory, working as a bartender in Jim White's saloon, a unique watering hole that straddled the border. Striped paint on the floor designated which country the patron was in. The saloon on the U.S. side of the line, but the kitchen and the sitting room on the Canadian side. Known to the locals as William Gale Collins, befriended a local man, Robert Ewing, finally telling Ewing his real name and confided he had a wife living in Dallas. Gale Collins asked Ewing to write her a letter, which apparently Ewing did. One can only speculate, but it is assumed authorities were watching her mail. It wasn't long before the deputy U.S. Marshal arrived in Pembimba looking for Collins. Appointed as a deputy U.S. Marshal in 1872, 38-year-old William Anderson was determined to bring Collins in. Arriving in Pembimba, Anderson first sought out local deputy U.S. Marshal Justin Lamore and Pembimba County Sheriff Charlie Brown. Brown served from 1876 to 1884, asking their assistance in capturing Bill Collins, a.k.a. William Gale. It would be easier to make an arrest, as she said, if Lemur and Brown went without him, as he was personally known by Collins. With the information that Collins was pending a bar in White Saloon, the two lawmen ventured into the boundary to make the collar to arrest him. Bailing up to the bar, both men ordered drinks, hoping to catch Collins off guard in order to get a drop on him. It had been noted earlier that Collins had a habit of always taking the gunfighter's seat, never turning his back to the door open. Both Lemur and Brown tried to get Collins to compromise his position, but when their attempts failed, they left without their man. Collins was apparently aware and sent him in town, looking for him as he supposed to have a share of Brown. He expected to have it out with the Texas lawman. Summary of the things that happened in Pembina, North Dakota.